Truth Espresso, episode 98. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hey there, this is Daniel Minnick, your host for Truth Espresso. Welcome to another exciting episode. We've got some really good stuff uh, to look at. And I would like to welcome back my wife, Chelsea, because I know that um, the episodes of Truth Espresso, as I've been looking at the analytics uh, for the podcast, a lot of the episodes that I have with my wife, Chelsea, seem to be the ones that are the most popular. And so, Chelsea, welcome back to Truth Espresso. Thank you, babe. It's good to be back. So what we want to talk about this episode is what is called critical race theory. And so Chelsea, ready to dive into a hot button topic here? Oh, yeah. So first, what I would like to do is to look at a few articles talking about critical race theory and how much of an impact it's making on education and how some people are concerned about it. And first, after looking at the concern over this idea of critical race theory, then we're going to dive in and see just exactly what this is, where it comes from, what are the goals, and what are the concerns that Christians should have for critical race theory. And so, as I look at a article in the New York Post. This is from April 24th of 2021. So just a few days ago, as of the recording of this episode, uh, the article is entitled How Parents Are Fighting Critical Race Theory in New York City Schools. So a businessman, Harvey Goldman, had his nine-year-old daughter attending Haeschel School in Manhattan in 2020. This was a private school, and Mr. Goldman was overwhelmed about how much his nine-year-old daughter was getting fed a steady diet of critical race theory in the fourth grade. He decided he had had enough of this and wrote a letter to the school. He said, quote, first and foremost, neither I nor my child have white privilege, nor do we need to apologize for it. Suggesting I do is insulting. Suggesting to my nine-year-old child she does is child abuse, not education, unquote. The school replied that if he didn't like what his daughter was being taught, he should withdraw her. He, in fact, did that, and they moved to Florida. Another article from fairforall.org, entitled Help Gabrielle and William Clark. Um, this is the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, which fights against critical race theory. Uh, according to this article, William Clark is a mixed ethnicity high school student who lives with his widowed mother. Uh, all seniors had to take a two-semester class called Sociology of Change. 
This class is basically a front to enforce critical race theory. It treated William as part of the privileged class and demanded that he specify things about himself, such as race, gender, religion, and orientation, and explain what was wrong about them. He had to demonstrate how he intended to dismantle any ideas he had that would generally reflect Western ethics. In other words, whiteness, bad. Male, bad. Affection for the opposite biological gender, bad. The class demanded William identify himself as among the privileged and as part of the oppressor class. Now, someone who was of mixed ethnicity and living with his widowed mother, you'd think that that wasn't someone who was privileged and an oppressor. William refused, and his mother refused, to subject him to such unreasonable demands. In response, the teacher failed him. Uh, They then sued the school for denying William his First Amendment right of freedom of speech and his Fourth Amendment right of protecting against unwarranted searches and seizures by forcing him to reveal private information and incriminate himself by requiring him to change his beliefs. So, whatever this critical race theory it is, it seems to be infiltrating education and demanding that people look at who they are and evaluate it and change to some new ideology. Now, Chelsea, even you have encountered critical race theory, uh, the idea that you have to look at race as a an object of concern and uh, look at certain goals and objectives. You've encountered this in the medical field, and it seems to be infiltrating all areas of healthcare. Uh, you experience this yourself. Do you have anything you can share about this and how critical race theory is infiltrating healthcare? Yes. So this last fall, I was required for my particular nursing license to take a online course about different race issues and just defining what white privilege is and how as a healthcare provider, we need to be aware of oppressing minority groups, in particular the black population. And our whole presentation was just describing about the characteristics of what whiteness looks like and how we need to acknowledge that, but then also repent of that and how the healthcare has been, um, in quote, colorblinded from just the oppression that we have caused on these people. And a very interesting class and also very discouraging at the same time because as a healthcare provider, one of our goals is to ensure that every single person, no matter what their skin color, no matter what condition they have, they are treated to get them to feel better, to figure out what is going on. And none of those characteristics actually influence how we treat them. Now, I mean, I understand and I'm sure our listeners understand too that there are different health disparities that run in different cultures or in different groups of people. And that's not saying that we are racist because um, some people might be more prone to a certain disease or condition than others, but we still treat every single person with the goal to get them to feel better. 
Yeah, exactly. Because medical is part of um, science. You know, if you look at the acronym STEM, as it's called, science, technology, engineering, math, the medical field is part of science and science deals with objective reality and what can be tested and demonstrated. And, and that's what you focus on. The, you know, you're caring for people based on what you can objectively determine. But yeah, I, I observed this, uh, some of this class that you were taking this like continuing credits or continuing education and and i saw what looked like people pretty much having altar call moments confessing their whiteness that they didn't realize that they had and committing to get rid of that and of course you know you have to define these terms but of course critical race theory seems to want to define what it means to be white and what it means to be black like whoever uh, has the critical race theory seems to want to be an authority on these types of things. Yes, so one of the slides in the presentation gave the characteristics of what it meant to be a part of the white supremacy culture. And I just find it quite humorous because a lot of these characteristics are actual attributes that you would want in a healthcare provider or in someone that's going to be performing a surgery on you, such as a characteristic would be perfectionism. Um, yes, I want someone who is going to be doing a prestigious heart surgery on my child to be a perfectionist. Like, I want them to have the skills and the knowledge and be detailed about how they are working because that is something that requires that. That's not saying that they are a white supremacist person because they're perfectionistic. Uh, a sense of urgency. Okay, if someone is dying, yes, I want that person to have a sense of urgency. I'm not going to sit there and say, oh, you have white supremacy characteristics because you see there's an emergency here. Uh, defensiveness and paternalism and fear of open conflict, objectivity, the right to comfort. Wow. These are all characteristics of what you would want in a healthcare provider, and yet they're saying these are bad, and this shows that you are a white supremacist. So, yeah, and so critical race theory infiltrating healthcare, then it seems like the idea is to shift some of the focus from the scientific method and from what you can determine medically what a person actually needs, what's good for that person's body, what's going to help their actual health, to more um, ideology like sociology and political ideology. And do we really want politics controlling health care and do we want sociology controlling our food supply or sociology controlling what it means to have a good education like i would think we want to strive for something that you know is as close as we could get to objective truth and objective benefits and objectively measurable improvement rather than preconceived notions of sociology. Um, oh, but you just use the term objective. <laughs> that's exactly. another white supremacy characteristic. <laughs> and I guess if that's what you want to call it, then I guess I have whiteness, you know. But I mean, <laughs> like I'm, what I'm trying to say is that 
these type of things really should be ideal of humanity in general and not what would be considered according to some skin color. So what I would like to get into as we've talked about critical race theory a bit you know we're going to get back into that in particular but if we look at like what just exactly where did this come from and what is it all about you know because critical race theory wants to say that there are certain things going on behind the scenes that they're trying to fight but what's going on behind the scenes of critical race theory so critical race theory is a particular subset of what would be called a critical theory. There's all kinds of critical theories, critical gender theory and critical theories that have to do with economics and capitalism and, and stuff like that. So critical race theory is just one particular nuanced instance of a critical theory. So just what is a critical theory how is it defined that would make critical race theory as part of the system? So, according to thoughtco.com, an article contributed by Ashley Crossman, updated October 15th, 2019, uh, she says, quote, Critical theory is a social theory oriented toward critiquing and changing society as a whole. It differs from traditional theory, which focuses only on understanding or explaining society, unquote. So, a critical theory has a goal. It's not just trying to understand the world around you. It's to try to change the world around you. And Now, what is this change? Uh, later on in the article, Crossman says, quote, Critical theory, as it is known today, can be traced to Marx's critiques of the economy and society, unquote. So, according to Ashley Crossman, critical theory comes from Marxism, Karl Marx. If we look at du.edu, there's um, an entry entitled, What is Critical Theory? And it says, quote, The concept of critique, according to critical theory, begins with the work of 18th and 19th century philosophers Immanuel Kant, G.W.F. Hegel, and Karl Marx. I'm sure you've heard of those three uh, philosophers. They have their stigmas in history, of course. Here we see Hegel and Marx again. So that's where a critical theory comes from, the category of what is called critical theory, from which we get critical race theory, ultimately comes from the ideas of Karl Marx and Marxism. So what is the goal of a critical theory? So, according to Britannica, the Encyclopedia Britannica, Britannica.com, the topic, Critical Theory, entitled Critical Theory, Social and Political Philosophy, it says, quote, Drawing particularly on the thought of Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, critical theorists maintain that a primary goal of philosophy is to understand and to help overcome the social structures through which people are dominated and oppressed. So, Marx, Karl Marx, wrote about identifying the oppressor class and the oppressed class. So, that's really what Marxism is all about. You know, they had the proletariat, the oppressed proletariat, and the oppressing bourgeois class, the rich or the aristocratic 
classes and the poor class. And, and the goal of Marx was to eliminate that distinction through revolution. And really, when you apply Marxism to any culture, especially critical theory, it's all about identifying an oppressor class and an oppressed class, however it materializes through the history of a particular culture, and then to determine how to eliminate that distinction. According to Amherst.edu, Amherst uh, College here, uh, they offered a class in the spring of 2014. So here's the description of this Philosophy 366 class. Quote, a critical theory has a distinctive aim to unmask the ideology falsely justifying some form of social or economic oppression, to reveal it as ideology, and in so doing to contribute to the task of ending that oppression, unquote. So, basically the idea, they presuppose an oppressor class and they want to unmask it for who it is. So you just might be unmasked, according to them, according to critical theorists, for being an oppressor, even if you didn't know it. But according to them, you're the evil, cackling oppressor. You need to be unmasked, and and you need to be dealt with, and you have an ideology that is oppressing people. Further down in the course description, it says, quote, Marx's critique of capitalist economic relations is arguably just this kind of critical theory, unquote. And it mentions, quote, later social theorists in what came to be called the Frankfurt School, Horkheimer, Adorno, Marcuse, and Habermas, developed and refined this Marxian project of providing a critical theory of capitalist, economic, and social relations, unquote. So, it is undeniable, it is admitted by any, really any article you're going to look up, any source, that critical theory comes from Marxism and Freudianism. And critical theory forces people to have to be identified according to particular groups. So while you're going through defining what critical theory is, I was wondering what your thoughts were on I know Karl Marx was a huge Darwin advocate, and it just seems like a lot of his philosophy was based on the evolutionist thought where people should be improving and becoming better over time. But as a Christian, we know like that we are all sinners and we will continually <laughs> fall. And I don't know, it just seems like the whole idea that Darwin presented that somehow we should be bettering ourselves in that through trying to look back at history and say, okay, these people messed up, we can do better. And somehow that's enough. It just seems like I was just picturing like the whole Darwin basis while you were talking about critical theory and wondered if you had any thoughts about that like if you think that kind of influences how they perceive people as being able to like progressively improve over time 
Yeah, definitely uh, Karl Marx. Admittedly, if you research him, he was uh, an anti-Christian. He was an anti-theist. He he was someone who wanted to get rid of the idea of God and get rid of the uh, influence of Christianity because he felt that Christianity opposed his ideas of uh, shaping society and and implementing uh, like a communism. You know, getting rid of the distinctions of classes of people. People and that the world can only improve as you eliminate, you know, the idea that some people are much more successful than others, or because some people's success and continuing success somehow is is oppressing other people. You know, it's kind of like the the whole world, the economy is just a fixed zero-sum game, and so if some people have more than others, they're they're robbing from the output of other people to enrich themselves. Now, there's no doubt that there are people who do that, but the way Marx would look at that is that if you have wealth, somehow it, it must be, by definition, because you've robbed from other people underhandedly. And he was definitely a, a Darwinist, and he believed in evolution and was an atheist, and, and and as critical theory also works in the the uh, sociology of of Sigmund Freud, the uh, the psychologist or psychiatrist, you know. Freud was definitely not a Christian either. And so it's like you have the psychology of Freud and the sociology of Marx combined together to make an extremely anti-Christian, atheistic philosophy of how to improve the world for ugly bags of mostly water. And so, just to think about how we've seen critical race theory and the ideas of how how to reconcile the so-called races infiltrating churches in the last few years, Christians really need to take notice and realize just how much of this comes from Marxism and Freudianism, not from the Bible. And if the Bible is our standard of what is true, we look to that, not sociology and psychology for truth and how we as Christians in the body of Christ are to relate to each other. I'll give a plug in right quick for a great book that I remember reading in high school that talked about a lot of these men that we're mentioning right now. It's called Seven Men Who Rule the World from the Grave. And it talks about Karl Marx and Charles Darwin and I'm pretty sure Freud was in there as well. But just really how these people that are no longer here have really influenced how we think and how we influence our children and how we pretty much live our lives now. And it's kind of scary that these people have more influence over our culture than who should have influence over our culture. And that's Jesus Christ because he is our source of what's right and wrong and our source of truth then. Just a great book if anyone's interested in finding a book for middle, high, high school level. Definitely. That's a great reference there, sweetheart. And now I want to look at how critical race theory is applied to our country, the United States here. So in 2019, the New York Times uh, started what they call the 1619 Project. And this is the idea that the United States as an entity wasn't founded in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence or 
say, 1787 with the first constitutional convention, with the great documents that expressed that everyone's created equal and they have their rights from the creator, and or formulating those rights, such as the Bill of Rights, which says nothing about race and whatnot. You know, these were the greatest experiment in liberty, but according to the 1619 Project, the United States was founded in 1619. Why would that be? Well, according to the New York Times, in their 1619 project, quote, in August of 1619, a ship appeared on this horizon near Point Comfort, a coastal port in the English colony of Virginia. It carried more than 20 enslaved Africans who were sold to the colonists. No aspect of the country that would be formed here has been untouched by the years of slavery that followed. In the 400th anniversary of this fateful moment, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully, unquote. Now, I'm sure we would agree that that moment to which they refer was not a good shining moment in history. We don't like the idea that slaves were carted on ships, that the, um, England sold slaves to the colonies and stuff. But really, is that how we're supposed to define what it means to be America or the United States? So, we're supposed to think of and define the United States through this lens, according to the New York Times, but forget all the inroads into creating freedom and wealth in the United States, despite some of this history. Forget the battles against slavery, even from many of the founding fathers, even when the practice was normal. Forget abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison and Lysander Spooner, who fought to end slavery in the United States. Forget that the United States became such a beacon of freedom and wealth that people from many different countries moved there for freedom and to help their families live the American dream. Despite all the comparative problems between ethnicities, let's look at some statistics here. The median annual income measured in U.S. dollars from Af for African Americans right now is about $42,000 per year and rising, according to the Brookings Institute. While if you look at world data, the median annual household income for most African countries is about $1,000 to $3,000 a year if measured in U.S. dollars. And so <laughs> I don't want to demean African countries there, obviously. What I'm trying to say is that even for all the problems that African Americans can admittedly face in the United States, if you compare their median annual household income, income to the median annual household income in African countries, there's no comparison there. And so that brings us to Black Lives Matter. Now, Chelsea, I'm sure I believe Black Lives Matter. Do you believe Black Lives Matter? Yes. Okay. So we agree with the name of this organization. I'm sure, you know, even if I read some of their, or their website, there's a lot there that if I were to understand the words, you know, according to my mental dictionary, I would agree that these are laudable goals. I, I you know, I'm going to recognize that 
there is a plight, historical plight, of African Americans that we definitely want to help improve and recognize that black lives matter. But if we look at the website and see some of the problems, especially when we look at the founders of the movement, we'll see lots of red flags, especially when we want to understand what they mean by the words that they say. So, according to the About section on BlackLivesMatter.com, their, quote, mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes, on Now, reading that, I would say, yes, I'm with you on that. Sounds good, of course. But, of course, we need to understand the terms. What exactly is white supremacy? That sounds like a very loose term, so we need to understand what that means according to Black Lives Matter. And what would it entail to eradicate it, whatever it is? What does build local power mean? What does it mean to intervene in violence? What does violence mean? These are all key terms that when you, if you have a certain lens or a certain dictionary by which you define terms, because we've seen Marxists define the word violence recently as things that have nothing to do with physical aggression, could have even have to do with innocuous words that unintentionally offend someone. Further on, it says, quote, by combating and countering acts of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation, and centering black joy, we are winning immediate improvements in our lives, unquote. And of course, reading that, you know, I'd, I would have a soft spot for that. I would say, yes, that sounds like an excellent thing. But we need to know their dictionary. Remember that violence has been redefined from its historical technical use to mean anything in which they feel discriminates against them or their agenda. Someone even simply saying something intuitively with no intention or offense can be a microaggression. And what exactly does combating and countering mean? Seriously, those words need a proper definition. They could be peaceful and innocuous influential responses to physical aggression, or they could be violent responses as in physical retaliation against innocuous words or actions that they perceive as quote-unquote racist. So we really need to understand what these vague words mean when they use them. Just what is black imagination and innovation mean if it is specific to black people? If you listen to episode 66 of Truth Spresso, where I interviewed Jamal Bandy on what was called critical race theory or Christ, Jamal asked the question, who gets to define what it means to be black? That's a very good question, because if we want to promote black imagination and innovation, doesn't that mean there's some kind of central authority that defines what that means, what it means to be black? Perhaps some black people might object to how people define this. They also said, quote, We are working for a world where black lives are no longer systematically targeted for demise, unquote. 
Now, of course, once again, that sounds wonderful. I would love that. But then I have to ask the question, what does systematically targeted mean? We know that the word system and systemic and systematic get tossed around to mean things that are supposedly part of an integral power structure that operates almost without recognition except by the oppressed classes. Really, any time any black person gets killed, as tragic and heartbreaking as that is, groups like BLM, Black Lives Matter, rise to the occasion and riot and loot and protest. Even before all the facts of the matter are known, any time any black person is killed, BLM will argue that it's a result of systemic racism. So let's think about this, what they're talking about with their goal. If we are to work toward, quote, a world where black lives are no longer systematically targeted for demise, unquote, how do we even know when we get there? How will we distinguish between a a murder due to alleged systemic racism and one in which the world is no longer under the grips of systemic racism. So, do we then work toward a world in which no black person is ever murdered? How do we do that? And I mean that in the same way of how would we have a world in which anyone of any ethnicity is never murdered. I'm not trying to make light of any plight here. I'm trying to understand what these words mean and what it would mean to accomplish that goal. Does that make sense, sweetheart? Like, how exactly do we know when we have a world in which black lives are not systematically targeted for demise? If anyone's murdered, how do we know that it's not a result of some systematic targeting versus if there is no systematic targeting? It, yeah. se it seems like an unachievable goal, and it's defined in the minds of certain people. Yeah, I think you're explaining it right on point there that and that's kind of their goal is to make it seem so kind of out there as far as you don't know, because now they can say anything is systematically oppressing them and that gives them ground to call anyone a racist. And I think that's the whole goal is to keep everything kind of vague and not actually pin it down. And I remember reading a few descriptions about the critical race theory, and it was talking about how most of their definitions are based on experience and based on history and the individual. So to me, it's kind of similar to moral relativism again, where everyone defines their own truth. And then before you know it, everyone can accuse anyone for anything. So it just seems like a huge mess. So as I mentioned before, critical theory and critical race theory knowingly comes from Marxism. And as Black Lives Matter, with their goals, they are promoting critical race theory. Now, does Black Lives Matter have anything to do with Marxism? You know, is that really what it means to believe that Blacks' lives matter? Do you have to be a Marxist? And are Black lives, their success, dependent on Marxism? Well, let's listen to a clip 
uh, from one of the three co-founders of Black Lives Matter. The video on YouTube I got this from is entitled Black Lives Matter is led by trained Marxists. So Patrice Colors, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, of course, if I'm not, then I'm, I have just committed a microaggression. <laughs> but, you know, let's listen to the clip there. I think of a lot of things. The first thing I think is that we actually do have an ideological frame. Um, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. Um, we uh, are trained Marxists. Um, we are uh, super uh, versed um, on sort of ideological theories. So Patrice Colors, Alicia Garza, and Opal Tometi are the three co-founders of Black Lives Matter. And Patrice, in this clip, just said that they are all trained Marxists. And so there you go. That is the ideology behind Black Lives Matter. Now, if you're not a Marxist, and this is the first time you've heard that, maybe you want to think twice before supporting Black Lives Matter. And now let's ask the question that Jamal Bandy asked me in that interview. Do these three get to define what it means to be black? Does their ideology as trained Marxists define what it means to be black? I'm sure black people like Dr. Vody Baucom, Samuel Say, Alan Keyes, Ben Carson, and Jamal Bandy would oppose the idea that Marxism is integral to what it means to be black. Are all of these brainwashed by whiteness? If so, if not, who is the central authority that gets to define for you? If you, my friend, uh, listening to this, would identify as black, who is the authority that gets to define what it means to be black? Is it these three women who founded Black Lives Matter? Just who is it? Or do you get to define what it means for you, what it means to be black? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25 therefore laying aside falsehood speak truth each one of you with his neighbor for we are members of one another for his name's sake what's up everybody i'm jamal bandy the host of the prescribed truth podcast where i seek to distribute the truth that the doctor prescribes to the church and the world today the lord graciously brought me out of a cult in 2010 saved me in 2013 and in 2017 prescribed truth began my mission has been to spread the truth of god's word while refuting dangerous lies affecting most churches and the culture at large from a biblical and reformed perspective join me on sundays at 6 p.m eastern time for the live recording of the podcast on youtube and download the audio version wherever podcasts can be found including the christian podcast community if you would like to know more about prescribed truth please visit my website at prescribedtruth.com and remember this world is full of errors but the only thing that the doctor prescribes is truth blessings So, uh, in concluding our 
our brief look here at critical theory and critical race theory as we're thinking about this from a Christian perspective. And as so many churches have been getting infiltrated by critical race theory, what is our source of authority? Is it Black Lives Matter? Is it any other organization or educational institution or so source of sociology and psychology that determines what society needs, or is it the Word of God, the Theobneustos Scriptures, that God gave us as our manual, our laws, our epistles of what we are to follow for the church, the body of Christ? It seems that Paul's message is that we are not identified by the past, Unlike, the, say, the 1619 Project or critical race theory that has us look at the past to determine the present and then uh, define and shape the future by getting rid of the past and changing the future. But Paul does not define Christianity, he does not define himself or us by our past, but by our identity in Christ. In Philippians 3, verses 7 through 10, the Apostle Paul says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So the Apostle Paul defines what it means to be a Christian is to attain unto the identity of Christ, to identify with the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. That's what unifies us. And whatever went on our past, whether we think that it was gain or loss, what we pursue, we get rid of that, not in the way that the critical race theorists want to tear down statues and get rid of anything good and only focus on the bad. And, you know, and that's their way of reconciling. What Paul says is it doesn't matter as far as our identity because our identity is found in Jesus Christ. Yes, I think it's interesting how the critical race theory wants to focus so much on history and the past. And we see so many times in scripture that God says he doesn't even remember our past or our sins. He remembers them no more because we just need to keep going forward. We need to recognize that, yes, we're sinners, even looking at the past in history and recognizing, yes, there was pain, there was suffering from the sin of racism. But this is something that we learn from. We recognize it as sin, and we change our thoughts and actions into the future. We don't just keep focusing on the back and looking at what we can get rid of. We keep moving forward and trying to love our neighbors and respect each person. Yes, definitely. So we are, and we see what Paul continued to say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. He says, 
forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of racial reconciliation? No, the high calling of God and Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as be perfect or complete be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. So there's the idea of having a unity of mind regardless of who you are. In verse 17, he says, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as you as you have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things." So, if you're minding earthly things like the color of your skin or your past and trying to identify yourself by your ethnicity, now, God created, as Vody Bauckham pointed out, God created people to have different ethnicities. Now, we, we shouldn't ignore those. We should glory in how God has made us distinctly. But our identity and our unity is in Christ, not seeking different versions of Christianity as if there must be a distinct white Christianity and black Christianity and compare them and see which is superior and inferior. And critical race theory is it's an infiltrating church as you have the leave loud movement. You have the idea that we have to disintegrate again. I mean, think of all the, you know, in the 1960s where there's all this forced desegregation. I don't, I mean, I don't agree with forced desegregation and integration, but there was a lot of strides made in, you know, getting people to worship together and not, and not feel uncomfortable. But now critical race theory is forcing people to think of things and be suspicious of people based on their skin color and, and then try to think, oh, somehow I'm being deprived of what it means for me to be a Christian based on my skin color, I have to have a particular black theology as opposed to what allegedly is a white theology. Paul said in Galatians 3, 26-29, For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have, as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise." So it doesn't matter who you are, what your ethnicity, we are to be one in Christ. And we are all Abraham's seed. We all inherit the promise based on Christ, not our own striving to have our own theology based on our skin color. Yeah, I like those verses that you brought up and just the example of what Paul is telling us, how we are unified because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. And the Bible teaches us actually what is contrary to the critical race theory. The Bible teaches us that we are all in one state. We are all sinful men. We are all in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. And anyone who is willing to come to Christ will be saved and have eternal life. We are all unified by the blood of Jesus as believers. The critical race theory promotes division, but the Bible promotes unity. You can see this in John seventeen twenty one. 
The critical race theory breeds discontentment. But the Bible teaches us to be content, as Paul says in Philippians 4.11, in whatever state I am, I will be content. In critical race theory, it encourages people to be prideful and to focus on oneself and how to achieve, how to pursue things. And the Bible encourages us to have humility. And even in 1 Peter 5.5, God actually says that he resisteth the proud. So he wants us to be humble. Critical race theory advocates rioting and looting. The Bible actually speaks against violence and destruction of property. You can see this in multiple places in Proverbs and the Gospels, even in the Ten Commandments. It tells us not to shed innocent blood, not to steal, not to covet our neighbor's belongings. So there are a lot of principles throughout the Bible that speak against this. Critical race theory is self-seeking. But the Bible tells us to bear one another's burdens. In Galatians 6, 2, we see that Paul wants us to, as Christians, to bear one another's burdens. And critical race theory totally goes against that. And I think that as Christians, we definitely need to be leery of accepting this theory into our belief system. And like you mentioned earlier, sweetie, about how on the surface, this sounds really nice. It sounds great to be advocating for people that could be oppressed or people that are being treated illy. We do want to stop that. But underneath the surface, this is actually going against a lot of principles that the Bible tells us about. And so if we use the Bible as our basis for truth and not just our experiences and not what each person determines, then we will actually see more fruit of unity in our cultures. Amen, sweetheart. What does Paul say for how to reconcile as opposed to what critical race theory demands that no black person can be racist, no white person can be not racist, that we have to basically be plagued by what ancestors have done to other ancestors? Paul says in Colossians 3.13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, That's not demanding a life of penance. (laughs) He says, if any man have a quarrel against any, he's not saying if your ancestors may or may not have done something to someone else's ancestors. So if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And so Christ forgave And he demonstrated it and he paid for sins at the cross. And so that is how we identify. And as we've received forgiveness from Christ via his cross, we forgive one another for the wrongs that they have done to each other. And Paul says in verses 14 through 15, And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, Put on love, you know, which is the bond of completeness, and let the peace of God, the peace of God, rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body. 
not a black body and a white body and a Chinese body, although in different countries you'll have different representatives of ethnicities and you're likely going to have mostly or all Chinese in China. You know what I'm talking about, different churches there that are largely certain ethnicities, but that doesn't mean that we intentionally do that and that we don't share the faith that other ethnicities represent as we visit churches in other countries Uh, some of the cultural adiaphora, things that are not contrary to God's law, all the nuances of culture are, you know, there's differences of practice there, but we, we share the same faith as being called in one body, as Paul says. So, which you are called in one body, and be thankful. And so that's the idea. We are all to be thankful for what Christ has done for us. We all find our forgiveness in the one person of Christ, and Christ is not defined according to any particular ethnicity, nor does that matter for us. Christ, yes, he was a Jew. That doesn't mean I, as a white person, don't get forgiveness because I'm not a Jew, or that Jesus has to be a black person for black people. You know, it doesn't matter. That's the whole point. It doesn't matter what his ethnicity was because what he accomplished, uh, as John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. There's no ethnicity there. It's for the whole world, and that's how Christianity, unlike the philosophies and sociologies and psychologies of the world, that's always trying to pit people against each other, How do we reconcile that? It's in Christ Jesus. It's in the common identity of Christ. And and, uh, as Christians and as churches, we need to fight against this critical race theory that is dividing people and making friends into enemies because our identity is in Christ. And when we can all identify ourselves, not according to looking for how to glory in the flesh, we look to glory glory in Christ, and that brings healing, that brings reconciliation. Everything, as Paul says, becomes dung that we may win Christ. So this might be kind of a weird thought, but I was thinking that it's actually really amazing that it was Jesus' blood that was spilled for us on the cross and covered our sins, because I'm just thinking like biologically. Okay, blood is what you know, contains like all the DNA and like cells and stuff that would cover all the different races. And it wasn't his skin that was sacrificed. And because then that would just be like just his skin. I don't know. That's kind of a weird thought. But I was just thinking, okay, that's really cool that it was his blood because that would cover all instead of just skin. So my weird thought for the evening. (laughs) Yeah, that that is a really interesting thought, babe. You know how he how he saved us was not through his his skin. I mean, it was pierced. The spear at his side, blood and water came out. But how he redeemed us is that he took on humanity, that he died and shed his blood and was raised from the dead. And our resurrection's not found in ethnicity. You know, he didn't rise from the dead so that he's the first fruits of Israelites who slept or of whites or blacks or Chinese. You know, 
he, as a human being with a specific ethnicity, he lived as a representative of humanity. And he, humans find their refuge and their salvation and their resurrection and their glorious hope in the one person of Christ, regardless of who he was. And so I hope that this um, discussion here on critical race theory got you thinking as a Christian, if you've been struggling with this and you know maybe people have brought in the emotions and you didn't know how to handle it and it just seemed so right and so ripe for this time and it's got you thinking of history and you want to repent for the rest of your life of your whiteness and whatever that you know however that's defined I hope that this discussion has started you thinking that there is an agenda behind this stuff and it's not pure. It's yet another attempt to infiltrate society with Marxism and communism and anti-Christianity. It's not Christian. It's atheist. (laughs) And let's find our identity and let's reconcile and be friends and worship together the one person of Christ who died on the one cross and provided the one way of salvation for all people. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 